Good evening. Always met with a rapturous response on the silent retreat. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so my favorite English poet, John Keats, coined the very famous phrase, truth is beauty, beauty, truth. Truth is beauty, beauty, truth. That is all you know and need to know. Truth is beauty, beauty, truth. So following on from Leela's very beautiful talk last night about truth and truthfulness and the beauty of truthfulness and truth. And I'm hoping as you practice here in these days, as you come closer to the truth of your experience, of yourselves, of your hearts, of your mind, that even though it may be difficult at times and sorrowful at times and struggle at times, you also appreciate the beauty that's inherent in coming closer to the truth of who you are, the truth of your experience, the truth of reality. And one of the beautiful things that we get to experience from our vantage point as teachers is we get to see how you move more into alignment with truth in your practice, in your honesty with yourselves and with us, and that you become more beautiful in, your, in that alignment with truth. So I hope you can see that just as you probably can recall incidents when you maybe were with a friend or a loved one or a child or a student and they in some ways were grappling with something and became more real, became more honest or more vulnerable. And in that vulnerability and exposedness and that fragility, you saw their beauty. And we can't help but be touched by honesty and truth in people, in each other. It's one of the reasons I think we feel that touched when we're around young ones, especially around infants. I, I had the pleasure of being with a dear friend of mine who has a one-year-old. I met them for lunch the other day. And um, uh, towards the end of the lunch, she, uh, my friend plunked the, her baby in my lap. <laughs> Big eyes. And just all presence, love, emptiness, nothing, everything, non-separation. And an exquisite beauty in that just being herself, in that truthfulness, in that realness. So what I want to talk about tonight, in terms of paramis, that really this young one called Skylar, who is only 15 months old, embodies as perfectly as any creature I've ever met, the parami of love, the parami of metta, as it's coined in the teaching, metta, this heart of kindness, the heart of goodness, the heart of love. So, and this parami of love is, I think of as 
central to our practice, central to our lives, and central to the paramis, that really every parami is an expression of love. Whether it's our practice of generosity for others, or a desire to be uh, ethically integrous in the way that we move through the world, the way that we speak our truth, they all have their seed in love. And so I want to talk about the unity of the practices that we do here of mindfulness and love, that they're really not separate practices, even though we teach them in different forms and different methodologies. Hafiz put it this way, put it this way. We are people who need to love because love is the soul's life force, is simply creation's greatest joy. We are people who need to love. It's part of our inherent fabric, the weave of our heart. So there's a, a well-known um, Jataka tale. There's many Jataka tales where the Buddha is cultivating this quality, this parami of love. And in this particular lifetime, in the many millions of lifetimes he apparently went through, he is uh, living in the forest uh, in amongst uh, a very large herd of deer. And he, of course, is the king of the deer, uh, as he's often, you know, the dude. You know. <laughs> and um, in this particular area, the, the king is very voracious, not the king of the deer, the, the Buddha is, but the, the Buddha-to-be. But the king of the kingdom uh, has a voracious appetite for deer and hunting deer. And so he, he goes out and kills a deer every day. And uh, rather than the herd living in constant fear, the herd decided, well, we'll just offer one of our brethren up every day rather than be hunted mercilessly. So um, this went on for some time. And then one day um, uh, a deer was chosen and she happened to be pregnant. And so she went to the Buddha-to-be and said, listen, you know, I'm happy to give my life over as, 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 as everybody's doing as part of the, the community, but uh, I would want to do that after I've given birth to my, to my young doe. And the Buddha says, well, you know, um, you know it's really everyone's duty to, to agree to this, but since you're pregnant, I'll offer my own life in your place. So um, part of this pact the king had with the, with the deer was that the king of the deer wouldn't ever have to give his life over. But the Buddha decides, the Buddha-to-be decides to give his life over uh, to save this uh, pregnant deer. So he goes to the chopping block and puts his head on the chopping block and the king's cook is, suddenly realizes this is this beautiful, regal being of a deer and realizes it's the king of the deers. And so he runs to the king and says, you know, check this out. The king of the deer has come and he's offering his life. Um, so the king rushes down and um, they have a conversation. The, the, the Buddha in his various incarnations has a great habit of being able to speak. <laughs> so this big deer lips, he has a conversation with the deer. And... Um, the king says, what's going on? What's, you know, this is, we, we made this pact that I'd preserve your life if you gave one of your brethren over once, once a day. And the Buddha said, I can't do it. That, you know, I, I'm, I'm offering my life in, to preserve the beauty of this, uh, 
pregnant deer. And, and the king so moved by his great compassion and his great courage that he decides to uh, uh, free the king and free the whole uh, deer kingdom from his hunting savagery. And so it becomes the first protected uh, deer park. And so the deer park in um, Sarnath is named after this event. So, um, you know, so here we have one aspect of love, which is the courageous part of love. That when, we, when our heart is imbued with love, that it knows no obstacle. There's no greater force in this world than the power of love as you may know. So, and as we've talked about, the paramis, they're both innate qualities, innate to our true nature, to our Buddha nature, and they're also uh, qualities we aspire to bring to maturity and completion. So I don't know anybody yet who's fully ripened and matured their, their heart's capacity to love and then moved into sort of the love of retirement home, you know, we're always growing this capacity and life will always demand that we stretch, that we grow, that we see where we're caught, where we, where we confine, where we limit our capacity to open to love. But to remember to trust, as with all of these qualities, that they're innate within us. So often when we practice, in particular when we practice matter, I often feel like, uh, I often hear, um, there's a sense that we're bringing something in from the outside, that we're we're cultivating something that's not already within us. And it's really important to remember as you practice, as you develop this quality, it's already within you. You're fanning the flames, you're removing the clouds, however, whichever way you look at it, that you're allowing it to shine forth more brightly. It's not something alien to you. My favorite uh, Gary Larson cartoons, who's a great Dharma teacher um, from the far side, and he has this picture of hell, and Satan's in hell, big fiery flames behind him, and um, he's shouting, Mom, no, no, Mom. And underneath the picture, the caption goes something like, um, despite his attempted, his... his, uh, Persistent attempts to dissuade her, Satan could never persuade his mother from offering milk and cookies to the accursed. (laughs) And she's there with a little plate of cookies and milk to all these new recruits coming into hell. (laughs) The little apron with a little tail coming out and, you know, all that. So it's innate within us, this this desire to help, to offer milk and cookies or whatever it is that we, we do to to bring about you know, kindness and, and, and warmth and connection. The Buddha once said, the goal of the spiritual life is the liberation of the heart, the sure heart's release, which is love. The goal of, the, the goal of all this practice that we do is the liberation of our hearts, the sure heart's release, which is love. So that's one way of looking at what we're doing here. And to perhaps remember that, that this journey is about transformation of the heart. So I know in the, probably the first dozen years of my practice, 
meditating and retreating and studying and all that, um, I didn't really relate to that teaching, the Shohat's release, which is love. I wanted to be free, and I wanted to get away from suffering and get away from this messy life and get off the wheel of samsara and be done with it and, and sign up for that enlightenment retirement home, wherever it was, where I didn't have to deal with the suffering and the complexities and the nitty-gritty pain of my life. And um, I had a lot of encouragement for that, to, to, to aspire to freedom, to understand emptiness. And, um, but it was uh, one-sided, one-legged emptiness, one-legged freedom. In that it was, um, it, it was, it was, I was too much leaning in it to be free from, which had a trace of aversion in it. It had a trace of not wanting to be in the midst of the humanity and the chaos of what it means to be human living a life. That it was a way that I was trying to somehow transcend to some ultimate reality that didn't want to encompass this heart, body, life, mess, chaos, difficulty, relationship, struggle, all the whole catastrophe, Zoba the Buddha, Zoba the Greek puts it. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Trying to transcend this messy, complicated world and you're sitting in meditation, I just, you just want to completely bypass, go up into bliss and hope you stay there for the rest of your life. Right? Well, you know, we can stay there for a while and we can manipulate and do all kinds of different things to, to develop that for a while. But it doesn't last and it doesn't really work. The Buddha tried it. He, went, he studied with several teachers, obtained great uh, attainment in deep absorption and states of meditative bliss and then would come out of the meditation and be back to normal, back to where he was. It didn't transform the heart. So he moved on and, and discovered his own awakening. So, um, without going into a long story about my own journey, which I don't have time to do this evening, um, uh, life uh, decided to, um, to redirect me from my journey of transcendence. Uh, that it made it impossible for me to continue to escape in some way into bliss or some ethereal realm. Um, and sort of whacked me over the head in the middle of my practice, in the middle of a three-month retreat, actually, and made me turn and face my suffering, face the pain I was running from, face the trauma, face the, the difficulty and the struggle and st- all the stuff that I hadn't looked at that was just bubbling underneath the surface, uh, unbeknownst to me anyway. And what that did was, it was, it was, a, it was a tremendous jolt in, my, in the in trajectory of my life and my practice, but it also broke my heart open in a very profound way. Uh, broke my heart open to uh, feeling the compassion for the suffering that we inevitably feel and go through as we, as we move through life. And so my practice took on a very different turn of wanting to really heal and come to integrate my heart and the pain and my life and and the journey that I'd been on and not just transcend and get away from it. And so the practice of matter, of compassion, of love became much more central 
and then began the exploration of seeing how those two practices really lead to the same goal, the practices of mindfulness and metta. So I wrote a poem recently that speaks to a little of this. It's called Descent into Love. Who would have known that burrowing into your own dark shadow down into the inner dungeons that hide their forbidding secrets and sore tender memories that you've spent a lifetime avoiding and running from would be the very passageway that begins with a crack, a hairline splinter in the rock that lets in a glimmer of light that leads upwards, but also leads you inwards into the soft fleshy room of your heart and begins to soften that house that has been vacant for years, filling it with a sweetness, an unimaginable openness, where the hard boundaries that separated you so long from the rigid edges of your world become porous, almost dissolved, and your skin becomes so thin it feels every impression of this harsh and welcoming life. And you come to know the other like your own, And that's where it begins. The love you've waited for starts moving like the breath, no longer making distinction between inside and outside. And that's when you can't help but fall in love with everything. And so I feel that as I teach and we hear stories, your experience in your life and your practice. And often we hear a lot of very painful stories because it's often what motivates us to do this practice, the suffering, the pain, and the sorrow, and the hurts, and the the abuse, and the trauma. And it really touches my heart in a very deep way to see the suffering that each one of you go through in your own way and the courage that you bring to your practice. So I wanted to read a story um, about how this practice, Philip guided us in the meditation on forgiveness yesterday and how forgiveness is part of the, the expression of this parami. And I wish I'd brought my reading glasses. <laughs> oh, well. Here comes some. Okay, good. <laughs> That's all right. I'm just used to getting old, so this is um, this is why I don't, I'm not used to carrying my reading glasses yet. Oh, there it is. Okay, good. <laughs> all right. It took Elwyn Wilson almost half a century to apologize to the African-American man he'd beat to a bloody pulp in the early 60s. The black man's crime, daring to walk into a bus station waiting room marked for whites only. But Wilson's victim, John Lewis, had forgiven him long ago, even as the white supremacists punched him and left him immobilized in a pool of blood in the Rock Hill, South Carolina bus depot in 1961. Now a Georgia congressman, Lewis 69, repeatedly suffered the wrath of white supremacists like Wilson. 
Despite the vulgarities and violence they leveled at him, he refused to return their hate. I saw them as innocent children, Lewis said during a recent phone interview. Something went wrong. We don't come into this world hating someone because of their race or color. We're taught to hate. I don't know a single person in this world that I hate. As Dr. King would say, hate is too heavy a burden to bear. Wilson's local newspaper, The Herald, ran a story about rock residents who risked their lives and served jail time for protesting lunch counter segregation. These civil rights right activists were celebrating the election of a president whose father would not have been able to drink a soda at the lunch counter they helped integrate. Wilson called the reporter who wrote the story and asked him to arrange a reunion with the protesters so he could apologize to them. And so the story when he, he went, he did, pro, he did apologize to them. And then the story got picked up by ABC and they arranged for a meeting uh, with Wilson, who was the police officer back then, and uh, to meet Lewis on Good Morning America. <clears throat> they both dressed in sports jackets and ties. The two men sat side by side and talked about the day in 1961, a few months before Obama was born, when they first met. I'm sorry for what happened down there, Wilson said in a thick southern accent. He extended his hand. Lewis took it. Lewis shook it. Wilson reached to the hug the man he once pummeled, and the two embraced like old friends, while Lewis said, it's okay, it's okay. I feel like I got saved, Wilson responded, shedding a tear. I never thought this would happen, Lewis said, also with a southern accent. Can't do it with a southern accent, sorry. It says something about the power of love, the power of grace, and the power of people to say, I'm sorry. It also says something about our time. We've come such a distance, the congressman said on the phone. We've made a lot of progress. Today the fear is gone. So what are the, one of the things I like about that story is the, um, the, the, the power that this, this deed, this incredibly harmful deed, lived in this man for 50 years, lived in both men for 50 years but you can also see the way that it tormented the perpetrator and the need for the heart to come to some resolution, to heal, and by doing that through, through, that apology, through the apology. So how are these practices of metta, of love, and mindfulness, presence, the same or different? There's a lovely saying from the sixth Zen patriarch who said, do not say that kindness and awareness are separate. One cannot arise without the other. Awareness is the foundation of kindness and kindness is the expression of awareness. Awareness is the foundation of kindness. Attention is the foundation of love. And kindness or love is the expression of this awareness. So if you think about any moment that you practice and you're fully present, you're fully with experience, right? There's attention, there's presence, there's connection, there's curiosity, there's a sense of allowing, there's receptivity, there's curiosity, there's intimacy, there's connectivity, right? None of those things can happen without, when you, if you're not, none of those things can happen. All those things need to happen to, for, you, for a moment of mindfulness. And they're the same qualities that happen in the moment of love. 
in a moment of love, there's presence, there's connection, there's intimacy, there's curiosity, there's allowing, there's non-judgment. Right? Very similar qualities. Joanna Macy, Joanna Macy, wonderful Buddhist teacher and activist, writes, the Dharma path strikes me as profoundly erotic. Not something often said about Buddhism. <laughs> Buddhism teaches us to pay attention. And if you mindfully put your attention on anything, you find love arising for whatever it is. Anything you put your attention on it and it reveals itself to you, the heart opens. Right? Maybe you found that. Maybe you're looking at your teacup. You're sitting at the end of lunch and you're just sitting there and the light hits it and there's just a sense of funness. Like this, and it's, oh, the spirit rock cups, the white, the way, the curve, you know. <laughs> or you're outside walking and you stop and there's a little black hard shell beetle just trudging his way across the path and you feel... You know, you want to protect it. You want to care for it. You know, it's not just, oh, noting, seeing, seeing, beetle, beetle. But no, there's a, there's, a, there's a response. I mean, that may be there too, but we're not, you know, mindful automatons. We're f- living, sensing, feeling beings, right? So there's a sense of, oh, you know, and we might be scared of bugs, but there's still a sense of, oh, it's living its life, wanting to find food and shelter, and may you be happy. You know? Mary Oliver, the beautiful nature poet, puts it this way, there is nothing in this world if I can pay attention to it long enough that doesn't cease to foster wonder and with wonder, love. If there is anything yet, I haven't found it. Yeah. So we, we see this particularly when we're outdoors. You know, we're touched by, by the beauty and the fragility and the, the deliciousness of the light and the trees, and the deer, you know, people talk about their encounters with deers here, and the lizards, and all kinds of beauty that just open the heart, touch the heart. So there's a poem, one of my favorite poets, Billy Collins, has a, I'll just speak a, read a little from the poem, um, where he speaks of this quality when the heart is open and gets touched. He writes, this morning as I walked along the lake shore, I fell in love with a wren. And later in the day with a mouse, the cat had dropped under the dining room table. In the shadows of an evening, I fell for a seamstress still at her machine at the tailor's window and later for a bowl of broth steam rising like a smoke from a naval battle. This is the best kind of love, I thought. No waiting or huffiness or rancor. Just a twinge every now and then from the wren who had built her nest on a low branch overhanging the water and for the dead mouse still dressed in his light brown suit. But my heart is always propped open as if on a tripod in a field ready for the next arrow. Maybe you can resonate with that experience. After I carried the mouse by the tail to a pile of leaves in the woods, I found myself standing at the bathroom sink, gazing down affectionately at the soap. (laughs) Maybe you know this experience. So patient and soluble, so at home in its pale green soap dish. I could feel myself falling again as I felt its turning in my wet hands and caught the scent of lavender and stone. So it's that simple. When we're present, the heart falls for soap. And mice, 
and whatever it is, because there's a sensitivity. It's a very beautiful place to be. There's a sense of openness, and we're touched. Yeah, and it's an it's, it's exquisite uh, place to live, rather than the, the more familiar place that we might live in, which is a little more numb, a little more closed down, a little more guarded, a little more protected, or just not even noticing the soap, like, yeah, 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 whatever. You know. So more importantly, we bring this sensitivity to our human condition. We bring this sensitivity to the, you know, to the first noble truth, to the, you know, the vulnerability of being a human being. Yeah. So my translation for dukkha is it's hard to be human. It's hard to be human in this world with a body and a heart and a mind and to feel that vulnerability, to know that we're going to die, to know that we're subject to being sick, to know that we feel essentially alone. Right? It's hard to keep the, the heart open to that. To, to deal with inevitable losses and rejections and failures and all of that. Yeah, it's not easy. Right? And you, and you, many of you are encountering the, the tenderness that comes of, of meeting your, yourself and your human experience. So I was once working with a woman here, and um, uh, as is not uncommon, she was telling me about her uh, childhood and her sex abuse history when she was she was abused when she was five, and um, what was was unusual was not perhaps unusual, but what was striking in her story was how much she judged and blamed herself for the abuse even though she was five and the, the, the perpetrator was an adult, she internalized that experience and made herself wrong. And so what we did in the course of the practice was uh, I just encouraged her to feel, to, to have some, develop some connection and rapport with this young one that was feeling blamed and hurt and judged and shamed and confused and violated and over the course of the day, she developed a relationship. She began to have a dialogue. There was more warmth and more love. And, and as the retreat went on, she, she saw through the, 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 um, the foolishness of blaming herself and judging herself and condemning herself. And she learned how to really embrace and love very tenderly that five-year-old that she had really rejected for about 55 years, that would be my guess. Um, and it was a very beautiful healing. So it's when we bring that quality of presence to our pain, to our tenderness, and then healing can happen. So speaking of five-year-olds, this question of what love is was put to some five-year-olds. And of course, they've always got an interesting uh, perspective. So one five-year-old wrote, when my my grandmother got arthritis, she couldn't bend over and paint her toenails anymore. So my grandfather does it all for her all the time, even when his hands have got arthritis. That's love. Or another child wrote, when someone loves you, the way they say your name is different. You know that your name is safe in their mouth. There's a Mary Oliver line that says, um, our names are like a, comfortable music in the mouth. It's a very similar phrase. 
Love is what's in the room with you at Christmas if you stop opening presents and listen. Love is when your puppy licks your face even after you've left him alone all day. When you tell someone something bad about yourself and you're scared they won't love you anymore, but then you get surprised because not only do they still love you, they love you even more, that's love. And lastly, if this is a fourth grader, slightly older, I'm not rushing into love. I'm finding fourth grade hard enough. <laughs> Maybe more honest. <clears throat> so, when the Buddha talked about metta, as distinct from my usual understanding of love, which is usually more romantic, sentimental, with strings. He was talking about a quality of love that's boundless, that wants nothing from the other, but is purely an expression of generosity and goodwill and friendliness that would manifest in the words, I want everything for you, but I want nothing from you. I want everything for you, but nothing from you. So he compared it to the quality of gentle rain, like the rain that we had the other day on Sunday. It was a very lovely, gentle rain most of the day that, that, that touches all things equally. So usually our love is very preferential. I love you if you love me, and I love you more if I love you. you know, you, and we have a few friends and loved ones, and then everybody else who we sort of care about occasionally. Um, and the, the orientation of, the, of the, the force of metta is to, to extend the boundaries until finally there is no boundaries to the heart where there's a sense of um, capacity to feel that warmth and goodness to whoever you meet without discrimination. This is Hafez again. Even after all this time, the sun never says to the earth, you owe me. Even after all this time, the sun never says to the earth, you owe me. Look what happens to a love like that. It lights up the whole sky. Look what happens to a love like that. It lights up the whole sky. So that's the, the quintessence of matter, uh, that radiance. But it's also, it's also that's in, in its more grand form, but it's also very simple. Just that simple connection, the simple wishing another well. As you hold the door open, and you want the other person not to hit the door, you know, or you let somebody else in line, or you, someone leaves their cup and you take and you wash their cup. Or as somebody said, uh, when they're washing their, on the dishwashing crew and um, wash, you know, dealing with all that you know, dirty water from, from 100 people's cups and plates and saliva and stuff and coals <laughs> and germs, and, and that... But that, that, that act of washing up is, is like an act of kindness that connects them with everybody here on the retreat. And it's an act of love to do that. Very beautiful. And so to see how even on a silent retreat, we, you know, we do that. There's, there's, the world wouldn't function without this basic care, this basic respect, this basic warmth and looking out for each other, kindness, care. And it's instinctual. Again, it's not something we have to go, oh, do I have to hold this door open? Mm, human being, mm, don't know. No, we just <laughs> open the door. <laughs> it's like, 
we don't think someone falls over, we, we, we reach over. Yeah, it's just, that's what the heart wants to do. Yeah. Dear friend wrote me uh, the other day about um, she went to go to hospital because uh, a dear friend of hers was um, uh, suddenly struck with appendicitis. And she wrote to me, said, my friend's feeling way better. She seems so appreciative that I've been here for her. I'm so happy to do that. I love doing stuff like this. It's kind of the most natural thing to me. I love living true responsiveness. Like if there was a car accident, while the sound of the car crash is still reverberating, my body is running towards the scene. I can't help it. And I love that feeling, that moment. Response, no thinking, just doing. I feel so at home in that. You know, so we do that without thinking. It's a beautiful Example of that we, you know, someone falls over when we, you know. So Alan Wallace tells a story of um, a man walking down the street with his groceries, and someone bumps into him. He knocks his groceries over, and the eggs spill, and the tomatoes roll out, and he's really mad. And he's like, "What the hell are you doing? You're blind!" And he turns around, and of course the person is blind, and they're on the floor with their groceries, and and of course that immediate reactivity drops to, "Oh, how can I help? Can I? Are you okay?" Yeah. I also like to think of metta as an attitude that we bring to experience in ourselves. It's an orientation. It's the way we turn towards ourselves, each other, and the world. It's an attitude of uh, openness, of warmth, of kindness, connection. And I think about the story that, um, one of the most touching stories for me in in the canon, after the Buddha died, and um, uh, the Buddha's uh, cousin and longtime attendant, Anda, was missing, and people got concerned and went to find him, and he was off in the woods, cons- uh, sobbing unconsolably, and uttering the words, "He that was, he who was so kind, he who was so kind, that after all his time living with the Buddha and his great teachings and wisdom and clarity and this great body of work and all that." what was most quintessential for him was that the Buddha was so kind. Yeah. So it's how our practice, how the rubber hits the road. Right? We don't sit here to become just good meditators. We, can, we sit to practice in this laboratory, uh, this, kind of, this sort of refined laboratory, so we can cultivate and manifest these qualities in the everyday. Yeah. And so to reflect when you're practicing, well, is my practice, is my meditation, is my mindfulness, is it perfumed with a quality of warmth, of kindness, of tenderness, of metta, of love, of compassion? Because nothing grows, just like in a garden, nothing grows unless it has the, the, the conditions of warmth, of care, of light, of receptivity, of sensitivity, right? We don't, you know, you probably tried, grow, be mindful, you know, stop being bad or stop thinking, stop reacting. It doesn't work. It's like, oh, reactivity, ow, it it really hurts to be reactive. It really hurts to be contracted. 
what's that about? Oh, I'm really scared. You know, when someone you know, slams the door and I get angry, it actually makes me really afraid. Like, I, I, I don't trust this person and I, get, and I get really young. Oh, that's what's going on. Oh, we feel some, some compassion, some kindness, oh, tenderness. And then the reactivity dissolves. But then Pasanjay, a great Tibetan teacher, said, realization will not arise in the absence of compassion. Realization will not arise unless this compassionate heart is somehow present in the field of our practice. And something I'm curious about in my own experience is what happens when the presence of love is, is here? When kindness, when compassion arises in your experience? Yeah? What happens in your body? What happens in your heart? What happens in your mind? Often we'll feel it as a softening, as a dissolving. You know, we may be feeling judgment and harsh and suddenly we, we feel the pain of that and there's a, and there's a softening, there's an opening, there's a tenderness. You know, we feel it very viscerally. Love softens contraction, softens the hard edges of the mind, softens the lines of separation. And we can feel that. You know, if any of these stories or something have touched you, sense into what that's like in your experience. You know, love melts in a certain way. Love, you know, we, we often so, you know, the, so wrapped in a sort of, in a, in a kind of egoic boundary of separation, of hardness, right? And if we feel it sometimes as a shell, as hollow. And when love comes, it softens, it moves, it, it's fluid, it's graceful. And so it's essential in this, in this exploration of understanding this separate sense of self. And how when love is present, that sense of separation no longer seems so believable. The, the, the boundaries have become somewhat permeable. There's a softness. And we feel a little more connected, a little more uh, malleable in some ways to each other and the environment. I remember watching um, <clears throat> uh, the Winter Olympics this year. Was it this year? It must have been a couple of years ago. Was it really two years ago? When was the Winter Olympics? This year. Okay, thank you. <laughs> that was the World Cup that happened this year. Okay. Which in England is like the Olympics, you know. It's, <clears throat> it's the only thing that a half decent at is football, soccer. So um, maybe some of you watched this when um, Joni Rochette, who was uh, about to uh, uh, compete in the figure skating, um, uh, a couple of days before she was competing, her mother uh, was coming to see her uh, in the Olympics, and she died unexpectedly of a heart attack. And, was, and she was very, very close, as um, a lot of athletes are, to their parents, and um, her mother had followed, obviously, very religiously this journey of her 
career and, and sporting career for the last 20 years. And um, so it was very tragic. And it was very, uh, it was talked a lot about in the media. And, and, and she's Canadian, and the Olympics were in Canada. And so there was this whole outpouring of love. Um, and choking up just thinking about when she was performing, the whole stadium was just, you could just feel it. It was so moving. The, the commentators were, were croaking and, and breaking down. And you know, she skated phenomenally, given the stress and the pain and the sadness. And you could just feel the whole of the country, the whole, and just like there's millions of people watching this event and feeling this love and, and, and tenderness for this beautiful young woman who was skating for her mother. And she dedicated her performance to her mother. And it just shows the power of love and the, and the sense of connection that can happen. You know, we don't even need to know the person, but we just feel the story. We hear the story here, and it unites us. You know, the suffering unites us. The compassion unites us. And the heart can't help but bleed. You know, it feels the tenderness, the fragility, because we know we know that for ourselves. You know, we're going to be in that situation if we haven't already been in that situation. Martin Luther King writes, an individual has not started living until he can rise above the narrow confines of his individualistic concerns to the broader concern of humanity. I believe that unarmed truth and unconditional love will have the final word in reality. I've decided to stick with love. Hate is too, too great a burden to bear. I've decided to stick with love. Hate is too great a burden to bear. And you can feel it when you listen to his talks, when you see his, the vitality and the power of that choice and that vision that comes from that orientation. So as we practice and as we get more empty in a way, empty in the sense where we get less identified, less caught up, less reactive, less living in the trance of our coconut, as Philip likes to call it, (laughs) less in the trance of me and my and my world and my stuff and my drama and my life and what's important, you know. Anybody caught in that occasionally? Yeah. Um, When when we start to unpack that, when when we start to have more of a Teflon mind where it doesn't touch, it just, you know, we see it, and we let it go, we don't buy, we don't grab, we don't grasp. And things get quieter, things get clearer. As, you, as the silence in the room right now gets quieter and clearer. And we may be touched by something that's not our usual self-preoccupation. We're touched by something that's not our usual self-concern. That we sense something vaster. We sense something more sacred, more mysterious, more empty. And at the same time, that emptiness is filled with fullness, with presence, with love. Yeah. We have these moments in the silence, in the meditation, in nature, where the fruit of our practice uh, is it becomes effortless. 
There's a clarity, there's a silence, there's a stillness. There's a sense of there being nobody here and yet there's a connection to everything. There's a fullness. So Nisargadala talks about it as wisdom tells me I'm nothing, love tells me I'm everything. Between the two, my love, my life flows. So at times we sense that wisdom of emptiness, that we're not who we think we are, we're not this story in this construct that we create. And that allows life and reality in this dance to be seen, to be lived more fully. Allows the, the channel of love to flow more fully. And maybe this doesn't make sense up here, so, so right now don't listen up here. I'm speaking to here. Right? So what's he talking about? Emptiness and fullness. And, but we can, see, can sense it beyond the words. We touch it in moments of silence and mystery. And maybe in that moment we sense the power of love, the strength of love. We, strength, we sense the field of love. So I was working with a student and um, she was doing a lot of explorations into emptiness and it was, her meditation practice was very deep, very quiet, silent. But she said it felt very um, cold, as sometimes people report. Uh, through the practice of mindfulness, we can get it can feel cold. Everything's vast; it's empty. But like, where's the juice? Where's the love? And I said, "Well, take a look. See what else is there. Is it really? Is that emptiness really cold? Is that really all that's there?" So she went back and she meditated. And she looked, and she came back some weeks later and said, "Ah, it's filled with love." It's pervading everywhere, it's pervading my cells, pervading my body, pervading this room as we're talking. And it was palpable in the room. I felt the, that the sense of emptiness imbued with love, presence imbued with love. This is from Eckhart Tolle. He writes, In the stillness of your presence, or awareness, you can feel your own formless and timeless reality as the life that animates your physical form. You can then feel the same life deep within every other person and creature. You look beyond the the veil of separation. You look beyond the veil of you look beyond the veil of form and separation. This is the realization of oneness. This is love. So one thing I wanted to bring out in this, in this piece of the talk um, is that uh, as we go into these deeper states of presence or being, practice, 
we shift from a, from a, um, a more familiar sense of love, which is more dualistic. Dualistic as in self and other. So one manifestation of love is we feel the love is here and I'm loving you. I'm loving this flower. I'm loving this deer. I'm loving everybody here on the retreat. Right? The sense of, and there's a sense of locatability. Love is coming from me to you and vice versa. At times, as we uh, drop deeper into our understanding and deeper into that sense of non-separation, where the sense of boundaries, the sense of self dissolves more, gets quieter for periods of time, then when the sense of love comes through, it's no longer a sense of me separate over here, loving that which is over there, but the sense of love pervading everything. Love may be pouring through this mind-body vehicle, but it's not loving something separate from myself. It's just love manifesting. You have a sense of that? Some of you? So it's a sense, thank you, Leela. <laughs> As a one, okay. <laughs> There's a sense of, um, you know, and people talk about this in terms of, you know, the feeling of oneness, the feeling of unity, feeling of connection. And maybe we don't break it down in such a, you know, analytical way, but often we can look back at our experience and go, oh, there really was a sense there was nobody there, but there was just love and connection pervading. Maybe you feel this with a lover when you're making love. Maybe you feel it when you're looking into the eyes of a deer who's five feet away. Maybe you feel it when you're lying in bed and you're just quiet or looking up at the stars at night. So to sense into the dimensions and and the, the capacities we have for love, both of a simple love where we're simply loving another in front of us, then we're simply pervading in love where there may be two people loving one another, but there's a sense of each, each person resting in their own sense of oneness, sense of connection. So Nisargadatta again puts it in this way. He says, I find that somehow by shifting the focus of attention, I become the very thing I look at and experience the kind of consciousness it has. I become the inner witness of the thing. I call this capacity of entering other focal points of consciousness love. You may give it any name you like. And then he says the phrase I said earlier, love says I am everything. So in the experience, we feel that there's there's no separation from everything. Wisdom says, I'm nothing. Between the two, my life flows. So, so what? So what? (laughs) It's all very deep and mystical, profound. So what? what? What does this have to do with our life and me and living in the world and you know, dealing with my broken car and 
annoying boyfriend and difficult partner and whatever it is that we, you know, grumbling with, you know, in our meditations. Rilke puts it this way, talking about how we shift, how we move, how we, how we bring this quality, we don't bring this quality anywhere, how this this experiences this of, of when awareness and love become fused, when we drop into the depths of love, how that informs our life. One of the ways that it manifests is we start to be less self-preoccupied here and we become more caring and concerned about the suffering in the world and in life and we want to do something about it because, that's, because as we feel that sense of non, non-separation, why would I not want to help? Why would I not want to heal? Why would I not want to do something about the suffering in the world? And when we feel, when we hear of another suffering, like when people tell us about their pain, like when a young man was telling me about having lost two dear friends, it's like I'm feeling the same loss. It's not different. It's not, it's not separate. Yeah? And so it gives us tremendous uh, resources and and passion and courage to bring that force of love into the world. And heaven knows this world needs that love. Catherine Hepburn put it this way, love has nothing to do with what you're expecting to get, only with what you're expecting to give, which is everything. Love has nothing to do with what you're expecting to get, only with what you're expecting to give, which is everything. D.H. Lawrence puts it this way. Those who go looking for love never find love. Only the loving find love, and they never go looking for it. So we want love. We bring that in by manifesting, by loving, not by waiting for it. (laughs) Where are they? (laughs) They haven't showed up yet. And the beauty of this teaching and practice and understanding is we don't have to go anywhere to discover this. It's not out there. It's not in someone. It's not in some experience. It's right here as we sit, as we walk, as we listen, as we sense our own heart, as we sense the stillness, as we learn how to meet the difficulty and struggle, as we learn how to turn towards our pain. Right? So the, the seed of compassion is turning towards and opening to our difficulty. It's right here. In every moment we're given that opportunity. Do I reject this? Do I turn away from this? Or do I open to it with tenderness? With receptivity? Do we bow to it? Do we, can we love it? Can we feel it? Can we sense it? So we don't have to go anywhere to seek love. If I did a poll, if we did a poll in the street, how many people feel like they've got to go somewhere to seek love, right? (laughs) We'd put our hand up probably. 
but not to forget Dharma practice and teachings remind us that it's already within us. The love that we're seeking, as Rumi often speaks about, that which we're seeking is the one that's doing the seeking. We hold the key to love's chamber right here all the time. And we forget, that's why we practice and we remember. We forget and we practice and we remember. We forget and we wake up. And we have this beautiful awakening of love and compassion. And then we get to the lunch line, there's not enough food, and we start helping people out the way for more salad. You know, and we forget. And then, we, oh, right, it's okay. And then we remember. We love ourselves, we accept ourselves, we forgive ourselves. Yeah. So I will close with a poem. Or two, or one, not the one that I can't find, will not be read, probably. I oh, know, here it is. So, um, I'll just close with this poem. So, this speaks to, this is a poem by Anna Akhmatova, and um, speaks to... Uh, It's, you know, there's, there's, there's so many dimensions of love that can be talked about, and I've touched on a few of them. And this poem speaks to the poem that's also present everywhere, that touches us, heals us, uh, that's greater than the sum of its parts. It's called Everything is Plundered. Everything is plundered, betrayed, sold. Death's great black wings scrape the air. Misery gnaws to the bone. But why then do we not despair? By day from the surrounding woods, cherries blow summer into town. At night, the deep transparent skies glitter with new galaxies. And the miraculous, and the miraculous comes so close to the ruined, dirty houses, something not known to anyone at all, but wild in our breast for centuries. By day from the surrounding woods, cherries blow summer into town. At night, the deep transparent skies glitter with new galaxies. And the miraculous comes so close to the ruined, dirty houses. Something not known to anyone at all, but wild in our breast for centuries. So let's sit for a moment. Sensing the heart, sensing what's here right now in the stillness, stillness and the silence. Love not separate from the presence that knows it.
thank you for your attention. So we'll have walking practice. And if the bell ring, you can ring the bell at nine o'clock. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.